welcome to Tiny Boys Talks with me, Tori Bono. And today, oh my goodness, like I am so excited. There's excitement and then there's a level of excitement that I am on, <laughs> which is like super high because today I am, well, first of all, Tiny Voice is talking about Talk Right, but I'm joined by the one and only Roz Wilson. So welcome, Roz. Hey up, love. I, oh, I'm so excited you're here. I'm like properly excited, Roz. Hey, Bagum, that needs to get a life, lass. I do love that. I really do. Now, we are here, Roz, to talk about oracy. We're here to talk about accents. We're here to talk about all sorts of wonderful things. But for anyone that's not too sure who Roz Wilson is, I think they've figured out you're from Yorkshire. But if they, they're not quite sure who Roz Wilson is, who is she? Uh, well, she's not quite as broad Yorkshire as she was talking <laughs> at the beginning, thank goodness. Uh, but she's not far off. She's Yorkshire and she's proud. Uh, she's a very old lady, Toria. You have to remember that. And, yeah, can I just uh, say, I read your bio and it said that you had 55 years experience. Oh, and I could, like and I like, went, how? Like you, 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 you don't look like you've got fifty-five years experience. You look very <laughs> youthful on it. I started teaching in nineteen sixty-five. <gasps> wow! And that was as a trained teacher. So that was after training, after three years training. So oh yeah, goodness. so I, I have to do the sums. Uh, wow. It must get me to, I think, 50, is it 57, 52? I don't know. 52 wow. years, probably. So, yes, I am quite an old lady and I've seen a lot and I've done a lot and I've been to a lot of places and I've had some hard times and I've had some hugely fun times. And that's what our lives are about, isn't it? They're a mix of the difficult and then the joyful. Absolutely. They really are. Now, I have known of your work for so many years, Roz. You know, I, I knew all about the big right when you did that. But you're, you've recently or you're just bringing out this new thing called Talk Right. I just want to know, you know, how has that come about? Well, it was a chapter of accidents, Toria. Oh, I like um, a chapter of accidents. <laughs> Which is what, probably the story of my life in one phrase. <laughs> I um, launched big writing in the year 2000 when I started working as an independent consultant. Mm. But I've been developing it since about 1993, 94 uh, in the schools that I worked in as an advisor in Kirklees. And I was very moved at how successful it was in schools, but in the world of academic English and in the world of politics uh, and in the world of literature, mm. it was not held in very high esteem. People seem to think you shouldn't be teaching children to talk better, you shouldn't be teaching them more words. As one author said, you should let them find out new words for themselves through reading as I did. I thought, well, you haven't met most of the children I teach who mm. uh, most of them don't have books and, and can't read very well. So they're never going to learn any new vocabulary. But then by a miracle, only two or three years ago, it seemed as if the word of politics and higher ed suddenly discovered that the way children talk affected their writing, which 
to me was incredible, of course, because the uh, buzzwords of big writing were, if a child can't say it, a child can't write it. And that's still true today. You know, everything, every word they know, they can say out loud unless they have a disability, of course, uh, and everything they say out loud, they can write down if they're able to write, of course. So the two are directly linked. We only have one set of language, Doria, in the brain, and we speak it or we write it or we think it, but it's all the same language. Mm -hmm. We may select words for different purposes in different contexts, but there's only one store of language there. So when they published um, with Oxford Press the Why Closing the Word Gap Matters, which was the Oxford Language Report on the impact of uh, children's ability to talk on their writing, I just thought, well, thank goodness they've discovered it at last. I've been talking about it for long enough. And now I can go explicit and do what I'd wanted to do for a while, which was take the very best parts of big writing and the whole world of oracy that I loved so much and marry them into one new program, which would enable children to be confident and articulate talkers and writers. And it, that's so vital. Like What you're saying makes so much sense. And I know so many of the listeners will be nodding along. Well, yeah, of course, if a child can't say it, then they can't write it. But I think that's really powerful what you say about the fact, you know, we all have that one language in our brains, whether or not we are writing it, whether we're talking it or whether we're thinking it. But we need to really ensure that children understand and and know that language. Yes. Now, we had a conversation before we started and I said, you know, is this a new thing? Is this just beginning to, you know, is this rearing its head? And you were quite adamant. It was like, no, it's not new. Sorry, you you were quite adamant that, yes, it is a new thing that's coming out, but no, it wasn't new with Big Right. But why do you think it's come out so much now? Uh, I think there have been some people of um, influence working on one or two of the committees that have worked with the DFE. Mm in the last two or three years, um, people who had heard me speak before, right. uh, it seemed in the uh, report that the whoever compiled the report uh, was familiar, very familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Todd Risley, who mm-hmm. was my guru through the 2000s. I learned so much from him. Uh, he was Professor Emeritus in the United States Sadly, he died in 2007, so they discovered him a little late, perhaps. Mm. Uh, But he did some really powerful research, Toria, on um, the impact of children's talk on their uh, lives Mm -hmm. and particularly the impact of the home and the people the children grow up with on the children's ability to talk and the vocabulary that they possess and that they know and that they understand. And that research made a huge contribution to the work I did through 2000s, right up until two or three years ago when uh, the DFE started to move towards what we're saying today. Yeah. 
And I think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put something out there. I wonder if actually it's, we don't stress enough with new teachers, early career teachers that actually the importance of children learning to talk because there's, we, I don't know, as an early career teacher, I just assumed all children could talk. I didn't realise it was a thing. Does that make any sense? It makes absolute sense. And and uh, for myself, um, my first job was in a secondary modern school and it mm. was here in Yorkshire and it was in a pit town and the children had quite, uh, they had a very broad Yorkshire accent and uh, strong elements of dialect in it when they were chattering among themselves mm. and they didn't change it for chatting with teachers in lessons and in the main they didn't change it when they wrote either they wrote in kind of street talk but I didn't think anything of it in terms of we ought to be changing that I was too new to teaching and no one had ever pointed anything and and I had trained as art and English English was my main subject to uh, college when I was training but it would never have occurred to me to intervene with the way they talk and Mm. it's taken my work over the years it was only as an assessment advisor when I was uh, reading thousands of SAP writing papers and moderating and auditing and uh, leading training for teachers on preparation for SAPs that was when I began to realize that difference in impact between the way children talk and the way they write and started thinking, so how could I get the more deprived children I'd worked with to talk and write in the same way as a privileged child does? And how could I introduce it and teach it in a way that didn't put the kids down and that was fun and interactive, because that's the sort of teaching I like, but effective that would lead to change in the way, in the vocabulary that they owned and understood and the way they could talk if they needed to and the way they used language and writing as a result of that. And that's all the work that's led to the development of Talk Right today. Wow. I love what you said about you wanted to teach them in a way that didn't put them down because language and the way that we speak is a very personal thing. So actually, you know, to have that addressed, we have to do it carefully. We have to ensure that we are doing it where we are respecting the way children are talking. I mean, I know that, you know, accents, regional accents are really important part of the Talk Right programme. So can you talk to me about that? Yes, I can. Um, What I've done in the Talk Right programme is I've adopted a terminology which I'm well familiar with from the world of EAL, which Mm. is another of my great passions. I've uh, taught children with English as an additional language for many years, both in England and overseas. Um, And that's code switching. And in the world of EAL, it means 
aiming to get the children to the point where they can switch seamlessly between their home language or languages and their English and backwards and forth. And of course, the one thing that puts a detriment on that in many schools in England is the fact that it's frowned upon to allow children to use first language in the classroom. And I've always been a great believer in children being able to code switch as they work with their peers in lessons, yeah. uh, using their home language to support their understanding of their emerging English. Um, but for Talk Right, I include in the term code switching for those of us who speak with a strong local accent, a strong local accent with elements of dialect, or even in pure dialect. Mm -hmm. So they're still speaking English, but it's non-standard English. And for those children, the program is designed to enable them also to be able to switch seamlessly back and forth. So they're going to learn standard English and even, for a bit of fun, receive pronunciation, which is uh, talking like them posh folk do, um, switching back and forth between the two, mainly through role play uh, and script reading and writing, mm. making it lots of fun, but so that the children, when it is the situation that demands it, are able to talk quite confidently and articulately in standard English, using a wide range of vocabulary and language structures. And therefore, when they write, they will be able to write confidently in standard English using a wide range of structures and vocabulary. Yeah. And something that we were talking about before we started recording was the fact that actually I said, well, you know, I've... I, I will tell children, to, you know, is that how I say it or is that how it is said? Um, what you said is actually it's not just important that we're doing it intuitively. It's important that we're doing it explicitly, which actually yes. is why we need to be teaching them this in a very explicit way so they begin to recognize the languages. Absolutely, Toria, because even well back in the 60s when I was teaching in Normanton and later when I was teaching in inner city Bradford and again when I was teaching in a, a very impoverished tiny corner of Kirklees, uh, over and over again as a teacher of English, I would try to help the children to correct their English. Of course I would. And through their writing, I would try to get them to correct their grammar and to understand uh, the rules of English. But I wasn't doing it as a language. I wasn't doing it in a way that gave it meaning for the children. And because it was just a part of a lesson and they heard it once, they would not retain that. They would not understand that, Toria. When I was researching for Talk Right, I found some amazing research that hadn't been around when I researched uh, back in the day for big writing. Mm. And there was one piece that resonated with me tremendously because it said it's not enough for a child to hear a word once to know and understand it. It's not even good enough for them to hear it four times and to use it four times 
to know and understand it. That most children need 12 exposures to an element of new language, using it in different contexts across different situations in order to be able to know and retain and understand and use it correctly for purpose and that's a, a, another important part of the Tokerite program is the fact that it is working across the curriculum so that when you're introducing a new word or new terminology you don't just you do it in English you're using it in geography and again in history and again in science and so on and so forth so that the children really do get a grip on what this uh, word or phrase is about and how to use it effectively and more importantly they retain it and we keep the language coming round again and again and again so that the children do embed it in long-term memory. Yeah so planning planning opportunities as opposed to just hoping to goodness it comes up in a you know in a lesson. Absolutely. Actually planning. Yeah because you know, and, and I, I wonder if oracy historically. Well, I, I don't wonder. I actually do know as a teacher. You know, I, I think oracy historically hasn't been planned for. It's something that just occurs or doesn't occur. We're busy planning for writing and reading and stuff, but we the oracy just is like an outsider. But actually, yes. what you're saying is, do you know what? It's bedrock, people. It's really yes. important. Probably the most important. It's the yeah. root of all English, obviously. Uh, and and it's always been part luck, hasn't it, Toria? Yeah. Some teachers let the children talk and some don't let the children talk and some uh, p- plan some talk activities and some don't plan any talk activities. And you might have talk activities next month and then not have them again for two months. And it was just hit and miss, please yourselves. And some schools positively dumb down talk and discourage children from talking. Um, You know, a a tragic thing, uh, I was, um, I had the great privilege of helping a very dear professional colleague Mm. to start a school from scratch in Qatar in the middle of a desert. Wow. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm asthmatic. When I get excited, it makes me cough a little bit. And it was a wonderful school. We had a wonderful time. We opened with 450 children, Toria, and yeah. only six could speak English. Wow. Oh, and wow. Uh, and we did it our way. He, I met him first when we talked together in, in that deprived school in Kirklees. And... We are so in tune, isn't it a privilege, when you meet someone where everything you believe about education is the same as they believe. Yes. And we knew we could do this together. And it was a brilliant school. Uh, I wedged all the doors open. We, we had two weeks of induction with the teachers, so they knew this was going to happen. They knew that we expected the children to be talking all day long, except in silent reading and silent writing, when those became right for the children. Mm. Um, 
And they had to be talking in first language and code switching as they developed their English. And we wedged all the classroom doors open and I prowled the school twice a day at different times of the day and just lent in doorways and listened to see what was going on. And I was prowling for talk. That's what I was prowling for. And out of the um, 45 teachers that we first started the school with, only one could not, would not allow the children to talk freely in lessons. And sadly, she had to leave us before the end Mm. of her contract because she was totally unable to do it. But all the others not only did it, they did it brilliantly. So much so that after two years, the children who'd started at the beginning in year five and were now in year six, they, those children took the English sats and we sent them back to England for marking by English markers and we got 100%. Wow. Yes. That wasn't us. That was the teachers doing Mm. what we'd asked them to do and then doing it because they believed it once they did it and saw how it worked. It was. It was amazing. And fair credit to Mick, that dear friend, because he was a wonderful guy to work with. But that's amazing. And I have to say, I love that phrase, prowling for talk. Prowling for talk. (laughs) Yeah. It always makes my blood run cold when you walk into those classrooms where all the children are facing forward and no one's allowed to talk. And you just think, wow, I mean, you know, how how can they develop those language skills? How can they, you know, how can they learn to become writers if they're actually not allowed to talk it's just you know children need and and what I've noticed so much following on from COVID is the impact on children's language their socialization their ability to just communicate in a simple fashion yes yes absolutely it's very very sad when you go into silent classrooms and of course now we have this new research um we we can see that if they're just copying silently from a book or off the whiteboard, uh, they're not going to be embedding that language anywhere. They're not going to retain it. They're not going to be able to use it. It's only when they talk about it and use it and present with it. Uh, there's a lovely part of Talk Right, which is called Be the Speaker, and it's based on public speaking, Toria. But wow. We're trialling it uh, in detail in... Uh, Parkside, my beloved Parkside School, mm-hmm. where I have the huge privilege of being a governor uh, with the great Chris Dawson. Dyson. Oh, wonderful! Sorry, yeah. <laughs> as as the uh, wonderful head teacher. Yeah, uh, and those children, you know, their their speech is restricted, but they're loving be the speaker because well, what we do is. Uh, Um, Each half term, they're going to choose an element of their learning. So they'll only do it about uh, three or four weeks after the half term started that they really love. They're going to each choose their own element that they Mm -hmm. love. And they're going to write just a paragraph about it. They're doing it now. Uh, And they're going to work on that paragraph with their friends. They're going to uh, improve the English. They're going to check each other's to make sure that's the be the teacher bit, to make sure that they're all using standard English. 
Um, they're going to put in some lovely suave words and some suave openers and so on. And then they're going to practice reading it aloud repeatedly until they know it by heart. It'll only be a paragraph of half a dozen lines or so. And then they're going to give speeches to each other and across oh, the wow. year group. And then the best of them will give the sp- their little speech in assembly. And they're absolutely loving it. And, and we think this will be a great program at the when it's spread across the school. At the end of each school year, we'll have a big Be the Speaker um, forum and uh, one class will be awarded the trophy for a year for the being the speaker in that class. So very excited about that. So the children do learn that they that's the key part of it, that they learn its language for different purposes. So yeah. it's great to keep their playground talk. It's great to keep their uh, street talk, but it's also great to have their more formalised standard talk that they can use when they're presenting to others. Yeah. And I just, oh my goodness, how wonderful and what a glorious way to celebrate speaking, you know, little trophies and everything. Now, you touched on suave words and I've been on the website, I've been flicking through the website and what is great is that you can download people so people listening here, you can download Suave Word of the Week, Suave Word, Wordwise Weekly Resource. And these resources are free, as, as are dialect words and dialect word collections. So tell me about the Suave Words and how they came about. Well, in big writing, we did always have uh, wow words. Mm-hmm. And we did expect them to be taught and to be uh, used in activities, but not to the same degree as we are doing with suave words. Mm-hmm. And what I've done is a great deal of thinking and research and you know, and considering families. You know, I'm a, a great believer in talk homework, but I was glibly saying, take home a word a week. And I thought, well, what about the poor family who has four or five children in the school and they all come home with a different word you know if I was mother I'd go and put my head in a washing machine (laughs) not come out again for the week so we've gone much more for finding words that are very short single syllable words in most cases Mm. but still quite powerful and words that there are definitely words that they already use the simpler version in their daily talk and would use in want to use in their writing so um this last couple of weeks for example we've had angst which is a beautiful word you know weird spelling the children absolutely love it uh, but they understand what it means to feel anxious about mm. something, so or worried about something, so they can use it quite glibly. And yeah. then we've used yearn, and they know what it means to really want something badly, so they've had no difficulty with yearn, and uh, they've had no difficulty with uh, fume, fuming because they know what it's like to be very angry or to see someone who is very angry. And the beauty of these words is we can give it as a whole school word. Yes. And it's just as suave for the year six children as it is for the six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. 
because they don't know those words. They haven't been using those words in their talk or the writing. And the fact that it's a single-syllable word doesn't make it any less valuable and important in their work and their talk. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love the fact that you've considered that poor mother with the countless children, <laughs> you know, and the fact, because, yeah, to, to have countless words coming back to you, you're like, oh, my goodness, what do I do? But to just have one word. And, and all they have to do, Victoria, is sit around the dinner table. Yeah. Kitchen table, whatever table, and eat a bit of supper together and talk and use the word in as many sentences as they can think of, make it fun, lots of laughter, and it's jobs are good. Yeah, and it comes back to that thing that you were saying earlier, which is, you know, how to embed a word is actually repeating it. Um, I've forgotten how many times was it? Eight? Twelve. Twelve. In twelve twelve times in different settings. And actually, that would happen if if you've actually, you know, it doesn't matter how many children you've got, if that one word is coming back and actually it's being used at home. Such a good thing. So and the year six child is not one going to want their eight-year-old sister or brother to know no. better than them, but the eight-year-old sister or brother is going to be desperate to know it better than the year six child. Healthy so competition. You get that healthy bit of competition as well, which is delightful. And then there is in the programme, there's also um, a new system for spelling. I met some more research which um, wow. talked about the fact that actually – Uh, starting off reading and spelling with just synthetic phonics is doing a huge disservice to children everywhere and the children should always have and should now be learning the alphabet by name from the start when they first start their Mm. synthetic phonics and learning the sound of each letter in turn because... 25% of the English language has no element of synthetic phonics in it whatsoever. 25%? I knew it was a high percentage, but not 25%. Goodness me! Yes, and I was amazed too. It was mind-blowing. So I thought, how can I help them to address this? So we've Mm. created a new system of spelling, which is only for use with the suave words and with those words that are not, well, we would have called them sight words, but most people, uh, there's a lot of confusion between the word uh, sight word and me and just the fact that you haven't taught them it phonetically, whether it has phonics in it or not. Uh, the true meaning of sight word should be that it cannot be built by phonics, so you have to learn yeah. it by sight. And the way you actually learn it is also by letter, name and sound. And uh, the system of sm- spelling is called the 5S system for spelling, and it uses it's very sensory, so it uses touch, sound and visual all at the same time and and it's highly effective so if i was if i was teaching the children to use angst this week or yearn this week those are the words i'd be using this new system for brilliant oh it just sounds fabulous it really does now the other thing i want to discuss 
a dialect words because I absolutely love these and they often come up on Twitter you know where it's what do you call these and they'll have a picture of you know what would be plimsolls in one place and gutties in another and everything else and what I love is you know you've put in so we've got dialect word friend and it goes round exactly what various different dialects would call the word friend where did that come from I think it's genius idea to put it on there uh it's just a natural thing. You know, I love the world of Twitter, Toria. I never <laughs> thought I would like anything like that. I'm not a social media person. I'm not on any other social mm. media. And in the main, I, I'm i on Twitter because I want to chat to teachers. Mm. I don't follow many people who are not teachers, you know. Mm. Um, and I think all my followers are in education. I don't know. How would I know? But but it just seemed a natural thing. When I was work, starting working on the dialects, uh, I have two male colleagues I work with, and I, they're both Yorkshire too. But what I was doing was I would say, well, I would use this word for this. What would you say? And the fact that they are South Yorkshire, they often had a different word for it than I did. Yorkshire's a huge country, county. It's the mm. largest county in the country, of course. Yeah. And that's because it's God's own county. And, uh, uh, you know, you can't blame him for choosing Yorkshire. It's so very beautiful. Um, but I was interested by the fact that even within Yorkshire, we were getting different words for it. So it, we, I don't know what made him think of it. It was just a normal, spontaneous progression. Let's have a bit of fun like this. Let's collect some dialectic words. Sorry, there's, the word dialectic was used in the wrong context there. Some dialect words. And mm. uh, and it got an amazing response. There were some some teachers who were in there every week when we put out a new word, you know, and uh, and made several contributions very often. We had a lot of fun with it. And, of course, we've collected them up, and Richard's still got a large store of them, and we're going to continue to do things with them. We, and we might actually start posting Dialect Word of the Week again to see if we can get some more Uh with Twitter, you, you have to not outstay your welcome, don't you? You can't overdo it. You know, people do get fed up or something. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure if I've outstayed my welcome yet on Twitter, but I hope not. I think the tinies are still, you know, well out there. But it's, um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was great. I really did. Now, the other resource that I noticed on your website, so, you know, anyone that's sort of investigating and, and you know, is just wondering what's out there with the taught right, but isn't quite yet ready to sign up, you've also got the right oracy pro progression, and that is, it's a fabulous resource. I've got to say that I downloaded it. It's, it's a free download, everyone. And it's just amazing, this oracy progression. So I take it that all your years of expertise have been put into this. Yes. And, and the work through... Um not big writing itself. I do everything that's in taught right is new and unique, mm. apart from the silent writing session each week. Mm. Um, but the whole premise of <clears throat> there being a progression through talk, you know, and children increasing their language as they grow grow up and increasing their ability to use language, yeah, <clears throat> seemed very important and something that. 
I wasn't aware of anyone really, apart from Todd Risley's early work, having explored in any detail. Mm. But uh, I'd been studying how children talk and the way it changes as they grow up for about 20 years before I started work on Talk Right. It was another of those things where I just sat down and wrote what I thought and then did the research to see if that backed up what I was saying and what I was thinking. Of course, the difficulty with the speech progression, the RSC progression is that it does vary so much from child to child and it does vary so much according to the type of home they're from. Mm. Um, You know, it was Risley who actually said that um, talkative parents raise talkative children and uh, taciturn parents raise taciturn children and... You know, that was something I had read into talk way back in the late 90s and early 2000s, but I hadn't seen anyone write it in a book before. It was so great to see it being formally recognised so it wasn't just something I'd thought up for myself. Uh, And it was so obvious. It is obvious, isn't it? So what he was saying was we made a mistake at the beginning. It's not about poverty and wealth. Because there are some talkative parents who are in impoverished circumstances. And there are some very wealthy parents who never talk with their children at all. And particularly these days, because so many articulate parents are highly successful business people and they're not at home during the waking hours of their children in the earlier years. Or if they are, they're too exhausted to sit down and talk with them. And uh, in the very wealthy homes, many children, until um, recently, until we left Europe, many uh, wealthy children were raised by people who were not first language speakers of English anyway. So, Mm. you know, it's very important who it is, is spending all those hours with the child, particularly in the first three years of their life. And then additionally, in the next two years, so from birth to the age of five, Mm. those are the formative years for talk. And teachers have got nothing to do with that. No. And that's so hard because actually they come into reception and potentially they have had limited opportunities to develop language up until that point. And as you say, it may have nothing to do with living in an impoverished background. It's to do with, well, their home life and the their level of com- whether their parents yeah, absolutely a, and b whether they actually want to talk to their children or not yeah well i i mentioned to you again before recording that there's um there's something called the language as a well-being indicator it's a publication and it's it really is quite something because it, it's what it does is it talks about language as being a the indicator for well-being and a very clear indicator if you've got a child coming into a reception classroom who has limited language actually that is an indicator of how they you know their their home life and everything else in a sense but it doesn't necessarily mean and I think this is what you've touched on it doesn't necessarily mean they come from an impoverished background no you know language is 
language is so important and I think we can't overlook it, which is why I absolutely love what you're doing because you're putting it front and center and saying, look, people, this is vital. And it is, Toria, thank you. Because, you see, the trouble is for us as teachers is that almost all teachers have grown up in a home with at least one highly articulate parent. Yeah. That's why teachers talk. That's why we are talkers. We wouldn't be talkers if we hadn't been raised in that sort of home. So we assume that all parents will talk like that with their children. But by Jove, they don't, you know. And the school has to remediate for that. It's our job to compensate, not just to dismiss and say, oh, well, what can you expect? You can't do anything with these children, which is what might have been said 20 years ago, Toria. Yeah. But you don't hear it today. You've got some wonderful, dedicated teachers working extremely hard to give those children an advantage. Because as you and I were both saying, if you can change uh, their level of um, confidence in being articulate, confident speakers and writers, you're actually changing their life opportunities. You really are. You really are. And actually, just you talking reminds me of a conversation I had with my stepdad the other day. And he was he was on a train and he said to me, it was, you know, that he said it, he was really shocked. And I said, why? And he said, well, there was a child sitting there and a parent sitting there and the child was on their iPad and the parent was on their phone and they didn't talk. And I said, yeah. And he said, it's awful. He said, you know, they weren't talking about the sites. They weren't talking about what was, you know, the scenery, what they were passing, anything else. And I said, but that happens. And I think that that happens more and more now. We are so fixed with our electronic devices, Roz, that that language that would have been there in passing when, you know, pre-electronic devices being everywhere, on a train or whatever, that's going. And so actually that language is becoming more and more limited outside of, you know, I think the school environment. And therefore, it's putting more responsibility on our shoulders to ensure that we are giving children that confidence and competence with language that they need. Absolutely. I I was parked outside the village primary school. The children, my grandchildren don't go to that same school now, but they did. Mm. Uh, I waiting for them to come out and I always get there terribly early because I'm always paranoid that I won't get a parking <laughs> space and it was actually time for the little ones you know the three to four year olds yes. were coming out and I watched a mother uh, drive up in a great big four by four and she got out of her car and she was on the phone on a mobile phone and yeah. she walked off up towards the unit and a little while later she came back down holding a tiny child by the hand and she was still on the mobile phone and she um, held the child into the car and she went round and she got back in the car herself and she started the car and she drove off and she was still on the mobile phone and I thought I wonder if she's even spoken to that child mm. for whom that long long day in school but you see I have two grandchildren and they're aged 11 and 9 mm. and they're on technology all the time <coughs> that they're allowed to be 
they will be on it. They love it, yeah. and and I'm supportive of it because these children have got amazing skills and can do things that I would never have dreamt of children that age being able to do. I don't diss technology. It is great, but... You've got to put your foot down. You've got to say meal times are talking times. Driving in the car is talking time. Yeah. You've got to create times in the day where we're not on technology. Any of us, because I have to say my daughter and her husband are on technology nearly as much as the children are, um, and just sit down together and talk. Yeah. Talk is vital. It really it is. is. So for any listeners that want to check out exactly what Ros has been talking about and look at the program and look at, you know, what's going on, if you go to her website, roswilsoned.com, everything is there. And of course, um, there are links as well to follow Ros on Twitter and connect with her. Um, Roz, it's you've been an utter delight to talk to about talk. I love talking and I love talking about talking, which is just, yeah. So I always end with the same question, which is this. And I know I asked, I, I told you I was going to be asking this. So I'm hoping 45 minutes on, you have an answer. The question is this, Roz. If you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Oh, Toria, you said I would know the answer. By I the did, end. I did. You well, do, in terms you know it. I you do know the answer. I don't know the answer. I, I want to say people like Dawn French and Victoria Wood. Perfect. I love I big laughing people, people who make life full of laughter and full of fun and, and are just a joie de vivre, you know. I just... I, I love that sort of thing, but I'd still need to think a, bit, a little bit longer. So um, let's hope I work out who I'd like. You see, I never had a teacher I liked, Doria, and I never had a teacher who I credit with doing anything positive for me. So it is difficult for me to identify a teacher. I'm sorry, dear. I failed you on that one. Well, I don't know that you did fail me because I quite like the idea of Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders joining the Tiny Voice Talk School. I think they would be a great asset Wouldn't i really do yeah so you know i'm very happy to have them on board with anyone else that you should think of <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you doria ros thank you so much for coming on tiny voice talks and talking to us all about your talk right and i just know that it's going to help so many children so thank you i hope so Thank you, Toria. I've had a lovely time and it's been delightful meeting you and talking with you. We have so much in common. And I've just knocked all my books over. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> I do similar. I just muted at the time, but you're fine. So th thank you so much, Ros, and you can go and pick up your books now. Thank you very much. And thank you to everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>